0: After my accountant dad was turfed out of Wollongong for misappropriating company funds and losing them on the horses, he worked briefly for a small jewellery store in the tiny New South Wales town of Lithgow. A risky move, I know, akin to placing Jeffrey Epstein in charge of the girls' dorm, but he managed to keep his nose clean and after a while found a better job in Gundawindi, where we all moved. So when dad's new boss asked one of my brothers how he liked Gundawindi, he replied that he thought it was a bit small. Smaller than Lithgow, Dad's boss wondered aloud, whereupon my brother instinctively realised he'd broken a family seal. Life before Lithgow no longer existed for the Duns, and if we were to have any hope for the future, we'd have to keep the past to ourselves. Which brings me to Pauline, and her story of a childhood dominated by a family secret and a life rocked through its true revelation. Welcome to my fucked up family. Pauline Dakin, welcome to my fucked up family. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Thanks Paul, I think I belong
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well having just read your wonderful book Run, Hide, Repeat A Memoir of a Fugitive Childhood I can tell you that you've gone Straight to the top of the class And you are most uh, definitely An honorary member of this family <laughs> So look, I, I think we should, we should delve into it Because it's such a fascinating story Such a wonderful story And so beautifully told uh, And I figured... Perhaps the best place to start is if you could tell us a little bit about your mum.
1: Well, uh, my mum was born on the Canadian Prairies in 1939, and her father had been in the Air Force. Her mum had been a teacher, and she had uh, an older brother and uh, a much younger sister, Um, and they grew up quite poor. They lived uh, in a little village, uh, and my grandfather had a... A gas station. But it was the middle of the Great Depression. So yeah, she she grew up poor. And I think uh, her mom died when, when I know her mom died when she was young. And I think that her dad didn't really have great parenting skills. And so she became, uh, after her mom died, she became very depressed. And I think she had quite a hard life living at home until she left to go and do nurses training and eventually to become an airline attendant. And then she met my dad. And
0: right. And had kids. Right. So so tell me, so she became an airline attendant and that must have been a very glamorous sort of role for someone who, like you say, grew up so poor. Yeah.
1: You know, the outfits had to be just so and the hat at a certain angle and, you know, you would take the coats of the businessmen as they came on board and you would serve a proper meal. Um, yeah, so I think probably when you as you say a girl from the prairies uh, it would have seemed quite glamorous
0: and it was in fact in that environment where she met your dad, Warren.
1: That's right yeah, he was uh, on the board of a company in Toronto and used to fly back and forth between Vancouver and Toronto and that where they met.
0: And he'd been previously married, already had a couple of uh, children. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, he had uh, young teenage children when they got married. Right. And mum was his second wife.
0: Yep, yep. And so then you were born and your brother shortly after that.
1: Yep. That's yeah. right. I was born in sixty four and ten in sixty six.
0: And from from what I've read, then you had quite a beautiful house in in Vancouver. It was, I believe.
1: Yeah, we lived in North Vancouver on the uh, approach to Gross Mountain. It was sort of a, a newer, upper middle class kind of subdivision, and it was a beautiful home. And uh, you know, we we didn't lack for anything that money could buy, but at the same time. I would say that it wasn't necessarily a very happy home. My dad, um, who had been to war, came home with a drinking problem and, um, you know, continued to have problems with drinking. And when he was drinking, he could be violent. And, uh, you know, once again, here's mom with a couple of little kids and a violent, addicted husband, and and so she became quite depressed again.
0: Mm. And so what did she do?
1: Well, she started going to Al-Anon, the group that is the support group for the family members of alcoholics. And while she was there, she met people who, you know, recognized that she was having a hard time and recommended that she go and see a counselor who worked closely with Alcoholics Anonymous in Al-Anon. Um, and Al-Anon. And he was also um, a United Church minister, and his name was Stan Sears. So she did that. She went to see Stan Sears. Uh, you know, and saw him weekly for counseling sessions for over six months. And she did start to get better.
0: And having gone through those counseling sessions and having the support of the group, she then took that must have been an incredibly brave move to leave your dad.
1: Yeah. In in those days, it was not an easy thing to do. No. Uh, divorce was, you know, people saw divorce as Well, a divorcee was somehow, you know, a suspect woman. Mm. And, yeah, so I think it was difficult to do. But, uh, you know, she did have uh, support. And, yeah, ultimately uh, we moved uh, to a different house and life carried on.
0: And didn't it? (laughs) So, yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, So tell us then what starts to happen in your lives then. What's the pattern that evolves?
1: Well... The things I remember, you know, early on was that um, we became close family friends with Stan Sears and his wife, Sybil. They had two sons who were pretty much grown up, uh, but we would do camping trips together on weekends or holidays. But then, you know, sometimes uh, we would suddenly go on a hiking trip after school to a cabin up in the mountains and be missing school the next day which, you know, we thought was kind of strange. So uh, slightly odd things started to happen. One day I came home from school and uh, my mother was clearing out the fridge, everything from the fridge going into a garbage bag. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, oh, you know, things have gone bad. The fridge went off and things went bad. Uh, But, you know, it just seemed strange because, you know, mustard doesn't go bad. Not everything in the fridge has gone bad. Uh, So there were just odd things that were happening. And then the really strange thing was that in the summer of, uh, well, the summer that I was nine, uh, turning 10, we went on a camping trip with the Sears uh, from Vancouver on the west coast of Canada to the prairies, uh, a city called Winnipeg, uh, just beyond where my mom had grown up. And she had some family in Winnipeg. And so the two families sort of went off on this trip. And when we got to Winnipeg, we were staying at somebody's house that she knew. And, uh, one night I was up and couldn't sleep. And so she told me, uh, that we wouldn't be going home. And,
0: uh, and
1: I just, you know, what do you mean we're not going home? We left everything behind. We didn't say goodbye to anybody. You know, my dad is there. Your parents and sister are there. What do you mean we're just not going home? So that was the, the, the strangest. <laughs> Of the things that had started to happen, <laughs> and um, you know, this it turned out that the Sears were going to stay in Winnipeg too, and he had a new job at a church in Winnipeg. And
0: right, so Stan had a job lined up, so yeah. it was it was all planned for him. So, did your mum just decide to stay once she got to Winnipeg, or
1: no? I don't think she intended to go back. Yeah. I think that that essentially um, she was running at that point we had started to run I had no idea about that or you know that we were running and wouldn't have understood what we were running from Uh, but I think that that was the escape
0: right okay so you stayed in stayed in Winnipeg for a few years settled I suppose Mm -hmm. started to accept that oh okay so we're not going back to Vancouver but this is fine you're a kid Mm -hmm. kids are so incredibly resilient they tend to adapt pretty Mm. pretty readily then what happened? Uh,
1: the year that I was in grade eight, uh, Mom said, uh, well, before she said this, uh, Stan and Sybil had moved away to the east coast of Canada and uh, he, to a city named Saint, uh, called St. John. And he had a new church there. And then Mom said, we're going to move there, but you can't tell anybody. So uh, she put the house on the market, but we weren't allowed to say you know, where we were going or what we were doing and when it sold we just kinda left and I wasn't supposed to tell any of the anybody that we were leaving. Um and the night before we left it was Halloween and I had gone to my my friend's house for a sleepover. She was having a Halloween party and then there was a sleepover. And I told her that we were leaving. I just couldn't leave without telling her <laughs> she was yeah. my best friend. And, uh, yeah, and then the next morning, Mum picked me up and we just drove away and ended up in on the East Coast.
0: Did did you feel incredibly unsettled or did you just sort of take it in your stride?
1: Oh, no, uh, it was... So the move from Vancouver, in that case, what I remember is feeling really sad and, and yeah, unsettled. And, in fact, you know, the the year after that, I suddenly developed a school phobia, and I didn't want to go to school. Um, and I think it was just because i you just never knew what was going to happen by the time you got home, right? I just couldn't, i you know, I became really depressed and was afraid to go to school. But when we moved to the East Coast, I was older. I was 13. And And in that case, I just got angry. I was really angry and rebellious. I didn't want to go to that city. I I had settled in Winnipeg. I had friends there. I had a life there. And I was really angry at my mom, and I rebelled, and I really punished her for it for a long time.
0: What were your feelings about the fact that it was evident that you were following the Sears' around?
1: Yeah, Ted and I used to talk about that. And we kind of decided that Stan and Sybil had become mom's closest friends. And... That they were a great support to her, and like family, and so we decided that you know she just felt like she wanted to be close to them, and that must be why we were doing this, moving really? around after them um although why we had to you know never tell anybody you know everything was such a secret, and you know that was the thing that troubled us the most and Always, when we were growing up, mum would say, you know, if we were going on vacation, she would say, don't tell anybody where we're going. She just didn't want us to talk about anything that was going on in our family. And that used to really frustrate us. And we would say, yeah, yeah, I don't, don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I would say, what is all of this secrecy? What, you know, why? And she would say, I'll tell you when you're older.
0: And And so your dad, at that point, still back in Vancouver... Did you see much of him or did you have much contact with him?
1: We didn't have any contact with him for quite a few years. Um, and at some point, uh, I think through lawyers, because there was always ongoing sort of legal conflict uh, between my mum and dad. And so somehow, you know, in the process and through the lawyers, he found out where we were and he came to Winnipeg Um and was you know came to the house for an hour Um, and then I didn't see him again for many years because after that we headed off to St John and I was um, just about through high school before I saw him again.
0: It's just so so brutal in a way that severance I guess yeah and and something that you just seem to accept that well this is the way it is.
1: Well and I think that you know, in, in most respects, I was lucky in terms of who my mom was. She was an incredibly caring and supportive mom in, in many ways, and the adult in the family. Yeah. And, you know, I knew that my dad was not a reliable parent, mm-hmm. and there'd been, you know, certain things I'd seen her when I was a kid. Uh, and so I just trusted her, yeah. and what, that, I think that's what kids do, right? They trust the people who are bringing them up, Yeah. up to a point. That, you know, by the time I uh, was more questioning and more angry, I was, you know, already on the east coast and a little bit older and so
0: then you you finished you finished school and your mum she went off and started studying theology was that around that time after you'd finished school
1: or? well i finished high school and then i went to university yeah. i took a year off to work and then i went to university and it was when i was finishing university that mom sold the house and went back to school right. um, and she left saint john and went to halifax where i actually still live um and was studying there and i stayed in saint john and at that point i graduated from university and i was working for a newspaper as a reporter yeah so yeah that that was Ted by this point had moved back to vancouver
0: right okay so he'd finished school gone back to vancouver you stayed on the east coast your career uh sounded like it was doing very well so you're now an adult uh, making your own decisions—you've got your own life. You're starting to make your own way in the world, uh, probably scratching your head a bit about uh, that unusual childhood. Tell us about the the rendezvous that you had with your mum in in February of 1988 at the Bluebird mm-hmm. Motel in Sussex,
1: New Brunswick. Yeah, mm. so Sussex is a little town. Uh, outside of St. John on the road on the highway to Halifax and my mother had called me at work one day and said can you meet me for the weekend and um, she said you know you've always had a lot of questions and I've always said I would tell you when you're older and so this is the weekend can you meet me and I said oh yeah okay and so we met at this motel and when I got there uh, we met at a gas station on the highway, just out around the corner from the motel. And I got into her car, and uh, she gave me a hug, and then she passed me a note. And the note said, "Don't, you know, don't say anything. Take off all your jewelry and put it in this envelope, and I'll explain later." Which just was so strange. Uh, I, I just thought, who are you? What is going on here? Anyway, so she, you know, it all went into the envelope and then we drove to, to around the corner to this motel and we walked in the room and I thought, what is going on here? And it was just a little housekeeping motel room, but there was a, a door uh, between, the, uh, from that room into what I assumed was the next room and she went over and she tapped on it and Stan Sears walked into the room. And I had seen, Stan had by that point left the east coast so mom had gone back to school Stan and Sybil had retired back to the west coast thousands of kilometers Mm -hmm. away and I hadn't seen him and I was just so shocked to see him and so you know we had this little reunion moment and then uh, they sat me down and they started to tell me this crazy crazy story about what was behind all of the moving and disappearing and the secrecy and so on
0: and so, what did they tell you? Can you remember? Can you remember they how me. they? Can you remember how they started?
1: Yeah, Stan started by telling me that um, when when he well, they, they reminded me, you know, that that mum had gone to Stan for counselling through Al-Anon, and then Stan told me this story about. Um, A man who had come to him, an alcoholic who had come to him for counseling, who had turned out to be some kind of a a mob figure, an organized crime figure on the waterfront in Vancouver. And uh, this guy was full of regrets and he was trying to get sober and he was trying to change his life, but he was caught up in this criminal organization. And um, so Stan was counseling him and... Then he didn't turn up, and it turned out that he'd been assassinated because he'd been followed, and uh, it was discovered that he was, you know, talking to a counselor, and, uh, and so, you, you know, there's the, the rule of organized crime is you don't talk. You just don't talk. And so he'd been killed for talking. And I thought, well, that's a crazy story, but, you know, what's that got to do with us? Hmm. Um, <clears throat> And then, you know, the big, the big reveal was that my dad had been involved in organized crime, and that when, and and so the people who had killed this man uh, had then come after Stan because they figured Stan. He told Stan a bunch of stuff, and that somehow Stan. There had apparently been some raids or something going on that made them think that it was Stan who was telling. Uh, authorities about what he may have heard from this guy. So they were coming after Stan. Well, then suddenly Stan and the divorced wife of another uh, organized crime figure are, you know, being seen together. Because my mom had gone to work for him at the church hmm. uh, in Vancouver. And so they they saw this. They figured that my mother was probably divulging things that she'd seen during her marriage, about my dad's criminal activity, and so they figured the two of them were working together with the authorities um, to give up certain information, and so that was why we were on the run because you know now that both Stan and Mom had been targeted, either you know to be killed or sometimes you know to be kidnapped to try and get information out of them or whatever, but they were targeted... And so that's why we've been on the run.
0: I mean, that's an incredible story in itself, and but um, but feasible, isn't it?
1: Well, I mean, we we know that organized crime exists.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. and
1: there are people who get caught up in it. We hear those stories all the time. But in my mind, it was like this is crazy that my family could ever be involved in it.
0: So, thing. so your so your instant reaction was that. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, my instant reaction was, "This could not be. How could this be?" You know, it's my mother, like this very, you know, ordinary person, and a United Church minister. Um, (laughs) And and then, you know, then I I thought, well, if it is true. How frightening would that be? And I thought, funnily enough, I thought, I'll go to Australia. On the other side of the world, I'll run away. Uh,
0: Well, I'm not surprised that's your natural reaction because, I mean, you'd spent your life doing it. (laughs) So I'm not surprised you thought, oh, yeah, I'll just bugger off and everything will be okay.
1: But, you know, it, it really came down to the fact that these were the two people in the world who were the most trustworthy people in my life. Yeah. I mean, Stan had become like a dad to me. Um, you know, they were just stalwarts in my life. They mm. they were always there for me and my brother. They were, you know, respected in the community. They were involved in the community. They they were not these people that you'd say you must be crazy.
0: Mm. You
1: know, they were, yeah.
0: That, that, so there's there's parts of that story which you go, okay, it, that's it's insane that we'd be involved in this, but I guess that is feasible. But then the the other details that Stan, then, Stan and your mum then divulge to you about their lives. Can you tell us a little bit more about those aspects of it?
1: Yeah. So, you know, a part of what they wanted to tell me that weekend was that, you know, at some point along the way, years earlier, they had fallen in love. And uh, Stan said he'd fallen more quickly and... And, you know, over a long period of time, Mom had two, but they had not acted on it. You know, Stan and Sybil were still together. And they, you know, so they they were just um, sort of sadly in love. Yeah. Um, but that, um, that they had decided that they were going to be together. And Stan had bought Sybil a retirement home on the West Coast and that he was, leaving uh, and he and mom were going to be together. But then the, the, the other part of that was that Stan was involved, that, that he had since ever since sort of early days had become involved in what he described as sort of an anti-organized crime task force, that it was um, an operation that was um, partly military, that uh, reported to the Privy Council that was highly secretive, and they had recruited him after somebody from the mob had come after him. Um, So somebody had tried to stab him, Stan, one night, and he was rescued by these guys that came out of nowhere, and those guys were part of this anti-organized crime task force. And over time, they kind of recruited him. Uh, And so he had continued to work with them, uh, kind of on the fly, and now he was going to, what he called, go inside and and fully work with them. And, and so they wanted me to know all about this because Mom had decided that she would go inside with him as well. And so what inside was, um, I guess you could compare it to some kind of protective custody, um, but it was uh, this sort of shadowy other world that was a Um, organized crime prison system, so not part of the regular prison system, but where organized crime figures could be imprisoned, Uh, but also as part of that world was the whole security um, setup. The people who, you know, were doing intelligence around organized crime lived inside because their lives were, you know, in such danger, and that also sometimes people who were rescued, who had been victims of organized crime, um, who could never safely live out in the world again because they'd been targeted in some way, they could live there too. Not in prison, but just, you know, there was, was housing for some other people too. And so, so it, it became. Fully
0: it, yeah, like it was a, like it was a, a co- commune almost of anti crime world.
1: I guess you could call it that, yeah. I mean, it was just this, this uh, hidden world that was all focused around organized crime, fighting it, escaping from it, whatever the case may be.
0: Right. Imprisoning people, rehabilitating people, all the facets. Yes. Right. And Stan was on the inside, so he lived in this place and occasionally came out. Was that the story? That's,
1: That's what had started to happen, that he had, you know, he'd left Sybil and now he was living inside except for when he could come out to visit my mother or on some kind of a, you know, if he needed to be involved in some something that was going on, a bust or whatever. Yeah.
0: This must have been <laughs> quite a lot to take in in this uh, shonky little motel off a highway.
1: Uh-huh. It really was. And to me, you know, <clears throat> that was the hardest part was that, you know, Not just over on the run, but there's this whole other world that's a big secret that nobody knows about, and we have people protecting us, and there have been attempts on our lives, and things are always going on, and that was stuff that was so hard. Uh, to get my head around <laughs> or to accept. Yeah.
0: yeah, so so I suppose they spent that time, I mean, you, you describe it beautifully in the book, um, they spent that time explaining all those inexplicable things that had happened in your childhood.
1: I would occasionally think of my life as sort of a puzzle with missing pieces, and it was almost like they were giving me those missing pieces. Right. Remember that time we had to, you know, um, Remember the time you walked in and Mom was putting all the stuff from the fridge in the garbage can Well, that's when we found out that there'd been an attempt to poison you, all of you and but we didn't know what the poison was in, so all the food had to go. Remember the time that we had to that we went camping at the um, cabin up in North End um, and missed school? Well, that was because um, we got word that there were people who'd arrived at the airport who were coming after us. Um, So there was all there were all of these things that had happened. You know, there was one day that my brother and I woke up and mom was packing a picnic basket and said, "Well, we're not going to school today. We're going to go to Portage la Prairie, which was a little town outside of Winnipeg." Why the heck would we? And we went bowling in Portage la Prairie. But you know, that was a day that we found out there was some kind of threat and we had to get out of the way. So you know, they were able to take all of these very specific stories and say, "Here's why. Here's what happened. Here's what it meant." And as difficult as it was to swallow, at the same time, it did fill in all those missing puzzle pieces in a way, like what else could possibly have explained our crazy life? Why else would people run away and disappear and not say goodbye to family and friends, you know, and disrupt life that way?
0: Um, It's just so baffling to get my head around and and your uh, I mean, you've explained it so well, your acceptance of it and how it it made sense of your lives. and that's what mm-hmm. made it um such a compelling story to believe. but there must have been part of you that was just going, no, yeah, yeah. well, I mean, it was
1: the compelling story, but it was also just the people I trusted and loved the mm-hmm. most in the world who'd never let me down and how could how could they lie to me about this crazy thing so yeah but yes there were times it was it was like an an ongoing battle in my head here's all the reasons it's true here's all the reasons it's not true you know it just my brain was constantly sorting to try and settle is it true is it true what should i do and ultimately um You know, we were. My mother was supposed to go inside to be with Sam, but there were all these threats and reasons that she couldn't. And I ultimately said, "I'm going in too. If this is real, I'm going to go in too. I can't live out here. But if this is real, I can't live out here by myself and not know how my family is or what's going on or whatever. If I'm really under threat, I I just don't want to be out here alone.
0: Well, I guess Um, I guess also the 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 By saying that you were going to go inside with with your mum when she joined Stan, I guess then that would be the final piece that would just eradicate any doubt as well, wouldn't it?
1: That's right. In a sense, it was a bit of a challenge too. Okay, if this is real, let's go. Let's go. Yeah. And. Uh, you know there were all these delays and all these stories about threats to family members if any of us disappeared and so on and so on and so you know increasingly with time i i am more and more skeptical and i i finally just thought yeah you know, there this is going to go on forever there's never going to be a time because it isn't real but i needed to prove that to myself somehow i just i you know to 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 abandon my faith and trust in these two people that I loved so much, I really decided I had to have some kind of evidence that this wasn't true.
0: Right. So what did you do? And
1: so I I, well, I, I kind of set up, I guess, a sting, you know, that I, I, you know, the problem with this kind of thing, you know, if everything is a secret, how do you prove it one way or the other? Um, and so I waited until a time I knew that Stan was visiting my mom. And then I called and I said, My house has been broken into. What should I do? My house had not been broken into. I was making it up just to see what the response would be. Because I knew that if they were making this up, that this would be an opportunity to sort of bolster the story, right? Mm-hmm. And if they weren't, then they would shrug and say, Oh, God, God, that's terrible, you know? And so mom said, Well, I'm. Um, let me just talk to our friend. Of course, you you never gave names over the phone because who knew knew who was listening, right? Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) I'll just
1: talk to our friend and call you back.
0: She's referring to Stan, obviously.
1: That's right, Yeah. 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 And so the phone rang and she said, yes, Stan said they picked up two people who'd broken into your house today and blah, 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 blah. And they had pictures of you and they'd been following you and yada, yada. And in that moment, I knew the whole thing was just a load of crap. I was shaking. It was just horrifying. It was just, you know, and I just thought, I don't understand why. What is there to be gained from all of this story? <clears throat> and that. Uh, so then, you know, eventually, I confronted my mum.
0: So you're not on the phone. You didn't. You didn't say straight away. Oh, this is all bullshit.
1: No, no, no. But sometime later, I. I confronted my mother and I told her what i'd done and I you know said i this is just garbage and you know I really didn't feel that you know none of this story originated with her; it was Stan's story, and it was Stan who knew everything and just told us what was going on, so you know, I felt that it was Stan and that he was deceiving my mother as well. It's just that she really believed it. Mm. And, you know, what I didn't mention is that we used to get letters from people who lived inside. People, some of whom we had known in a previous life, who it turned out had been involved in organized crime and had been arrested. We would get reams of letters from people. And so in order to believe that this was not true, you had to believe that Stan wrote all those letters Mm. in all different kinds of handwriting. Mm. Um, So, you know, I mean, there were a lot of... Things that went into the convincing, and when I told, confronted my mum, she just was horrified that I didn't believe. Because oh my god, now you're going to put yourself in at risk. If you don't believe this, you're not going to take precautions. You're not, you know, you're going to be at risk. Oh my god! Was she was funny. so
0: deeply embedded in this belief that her first reaction was, "Oh no, yeah. this is this is not a falsehood that I've been living. I'm more concerned about your well-being."
1: Yes. yes. Yeah.
0: So what happened then?
1: I I then confronted Stan and his reaction, you know, to the the fact that I that there was no break in was, oh god, there must be some mistake, you know, we're going to have to investigate this, I don't know why, blah blah blah. And that was always the way. If there was ever any inconsistency, it was always, oh god, there must be like a a, a leak in the organization. There must be something wrong. We have to investigate, right? Um, But overall, his response was just that he was really sad. He was very sad because now I was not going to be part of the inside circle, you know, that I was an outsider who no longer was part of who believed.
0: Did you lose your shit at him?
1: Uh, well, I was angry, Uh yeah. Uh, But I have to say, I think I was just in some kind of shock, mostly. And, yeah, you know, over time I became a whole lot angrier. (laughs) Right. Um, But, yeah, I just just couldn't quite believe what had happened. Like, it took me a long time to say, oh, my God, the things you did. Like, it was so huge in terms of our whole lives, And the impact on our whole lives and all of our relationships that I I just, it took me forever to really understand. To process it. big thing they've
0: done. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, I mean, just, it's so elaborate, the detail. I mean, as a writer, you just, on one hand, you must sort of like admire the creativity that's gone into it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: It's true. It's true. And I wished I'd been taking notes all along, because there were so many little details that I couldn't remember. I had sort of vague recollections of many things, but, you know, there were some crazy, crazy stories. One very complex story that involved a cabinet minister in Canada and a kidnapping, and I remembered that there'd been news about this. And I researched and there had, there was like so many of his stories were rooted in some kind of reality. And when I later went to do the research, I could find that there was something that he hung a lot of his stories on. Yeah, right. Which right. made them that much more believable.
0: Yeah, yeah. So he just knitted his fantastical world into kind of the realm of the real world just so it held together mm-hmm. a bit better. So, how do you move on from that? I don't imagine you're getting together for Christmas anymore.
1: Well, there was a separation for sure with Stan. I only ever saw him one other time. Right. Okay. Um, and with my mum, the the separation was much more emotional than physical. Although right. I saw much less of her. Yeah. Um, and my brother and I, you know, had conversations around all of this. And decided that you know she was at risk, that she had been brainwashed, that yeah. she was at risk, and how were we going to uh, deprogram her? Um, and so, you know, I I was furious with her for years. I was angry with her. I was cold to her. Um, but you know, I had married, I had kids. I wanted them to have a grandmother, and I knew that she would would be, and she was a very loving grandmother. Mm. Um, you know, it was this strange situation that once I didn't believe, she never talked about it with me again. Right. And so, yes, it was this strange situation, but she knew um, that, yeah, that it had ruined our relationship, essentially.
0: What did you try and do to extricate her from that relationship and that belief?
1: Uh, My brother went to the RCMP, which is the National Police Force in Canada, and, uh, you know, asked for advice and assistance, and they just said, there's nothing that we can do. He's not doing anything illegal. Um, You can, you know, you can tell her that he's lying. (laughs) But I had done that already. Mm. So it just seemed as though there was nothing uh, to do. I went to see a psychiatrist to say, okay, what do you think is going on here? Is he crazy? Is he psychotic? Is he evil? Is he whatever? And um, and one of the things he said was that when Stan died, and Stan was older than my mom um, by about 16 years, and when Stan died, that, that story would no longer control her mm-hmm. and that that would be the point at which Uh, you know, we might be able to get her deprogrammed, if you want to use that language. Um, And so, you know, I I prayed every day that Stan would die and release my mother from all of this. But at some point, you know, if you have invested your whole life, your whole adult, much of your adult life in a story, and you have done things to your family in support of it, you've ruptured your kids' relationships and dragged them all over the country, and caused a whole lot of dysfunction i think it becomes impossible to then release it because what does that mean what have you done i just think she she never um uh, uh, so stan uh died Mm. uh the year that my oldest daughter was born she you know she lived for years after stan but she never let the story go. She never stopped believing it. And I, it, it, when she was dying, she came to live with me and I took care of her. And about 10 days before she died, she said to me um, something about being careful um, about my half siblings, uh, my father's kids from his first marriage, because she felt they were, you know, part of the organized crime family and they were going to come after us and all this kind of stuff. And wow. I just looked at her and, and we hadn't talked about this in years. And I said, you know what? I don't have anything to be careful about. I don't need to be any more careful than anybody else. And she was, she looked at me and she said, God, you know, what you must think if you, if you really don't still don't believe any of this, what you must think of me, how you must hate me. It was a, just an awful moment. And I said to her, "Mom, I don't hate you. I have been really angry at you, but I don't hate you." And you know in the in the the week before she died, uh, she ended up in the hospital for the last bit of her life, and and I was there, and I, we came as close as we could to sort of making some kind of peace. Mm. Uh, and I'm really grateful for that.
0: How did you do that? In what way?
1: Um, I think, you know, just an acknowledgement that we saw things differently and I was no longer so angry. You know, I'd kind of gotten over some of that. This was, you know, years and years later. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I saw her vulnerability and I started to understand, you know, how somebody could be vulnerable to somebody like Stan. Stan was... Just such a compelling character. He was, um, he was funny, but he could also be very serious. He was very gentle, but he, you know, he was just—I could see the attraction. Mm. Especially given that every man in my mother's life—her father, her husband—had been abusive to her, mm. Mm. and here comes this guy who is gentle and caring, and he's a minister. So I, I began to understand uh, what her vulnerability was. And increasingly, I felt really sad about what a hard life she had because she never did get together with Stan. She loved this guy for 25 years. They never got together. They never went inside together. And she lived in fear, fear of for her kids, fear for him. And it was just such a hard, nasty life. She could have just left my father met some nice guy, gotten remarried and had a nice life. But instead, you know, she got caught up in all of this and it was a horrible life.
0: Yeah. So all that time, all those years, those 25 years and uh, all those later years when Stan was saying that he was inside and he was coming out to visit her, he was Mm -hmm. actually still secretly living with his wife.
1: He was. Yeah. When Stan died. Both of us got a letter from Sybil saying that he'd died, which I think must have been just crushing for her. Um,
0: So that's how she
1: found out. That's how she found out. She knew he'd gone quiet. So he used to call her every few days. uh, And she knew he'd gone quiet. She hadn't heard from him. And so she was terrified about what that meant. And then much later comes this letter from Sybil. It was awful. It was just awful. And, of course, she could not mourn publicly in any way. It was all just, you know, trying to keep on with her life while she mourned this guy that she loved for 25 years.
0: And so, of course, you know, as you, through your um, work as a reporter, you, um, I mean, Stan must have been quite worried that you were a reporter. <laughs> you in quite an inquisitive mind. <laughs> um, but you did find out, because you obviously wanted to find out, what was driving Stan, and what, what had led him to deceive your mother so much. So tell us a little bit about what you found out about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when I first started trying to find things out, the internet did not exist, mm. really. And uh, and so, you know, I was had gone to the library, and I had gone to see a psychiatrist, and I had, you know, I'd been looking for information. And then... You know, eventually I just kind of put all this stuff behind me, because at some point you have to have your own life, mm. and try not to let that all drag you down. Um, but when I started doing my master's degree, and decided to write about this, I'd never intended to publish it. I was just trying to figure out in my own head, and for my family, for my brother and my kids, what had gone on, and uh, so I started doing research again, and I just, I had done that periodically and never really come up with anything very satisfying, but on this one particular day, I I remember I was sitting at my dining room table working, and suddenly there was this reference to delusional disorder, and as I read it, I just knew, I just knew this is what was going on, because in delusional disorder, it's a late-onset kind of situation. There's different subtypes, uh, but... Uh, what was described in this article was somebody with um, a, a very specific delusion of being persecuted, being chased, of having secret information that nobody else has. Uh, but, in, but they're not psychotic or schizophrenic, they, and they don't show signs, uh, other signs of mental illness necessarily. So this can be entirely encapsulated into their own head. And they can live normal lives, and Mm. nobody knows what's going on because they are otherwise normally functioning people. It's just that they have this delusion that they carry around, and they're never going to tell anybody about it, and they don't think there's anything wrong with themselves, so they don't go looking for help. So, you know, this was described as an extremely rare condition. And, in fact, I have since decided, and, and and experts that I've talked to have said, so as well that it's probably not that rare it's just they don't go looking for help yeah. and if they don't come to the attention of authorities in some way then you know they just carry on with their lives, with their lives. and only their families know about the craziness so i knew that's what it was so i i uh, tracked down the author of the paper who was um, a professor at harvard and he worked in uh, boston as a psychiatrist and i Said, "Can I ask you some questions?" And he was very generous with his time, and, and he was quite fascinated by my story. <laughs> um, and then he said, "Yeah." And then he said, "You know, there's somebody uh, who I think lives somewhere near you, who is considered like the expert on this, and he has seen more of these patients than anybody else." Um, he said, "I think he's at Dalhousie." Well, Dalhousie was where uh, you know I, I live in the same city, and yeah. in fact, I work for the University of King's College on Dalhousie campus. So, <laughs> uh, so I was easily able to track down this other fellow, Dr. Alistair Monroe, and uh, and he agreed with me that it sounded very much like that's what had been going on.
0: So and so, for me, and, yeah, sorry, it was carry on.
1: Huge relief to know. And and
0: so the and so that diagnosis, I guess, if you can call it that, um, it it meant that Stan d- didn't try and dupe your mother or you guys. He one hundred percent believed this to be true.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and it was described to me as you know people are extremely committed to their delusion. And so I was saying, but he wrote the letters. He had to have written all those letters. And it's like, yeah, but somebody with that delusion can do things to support it and still believe it, which is just hard to imagine. Uh, But, yeah, that must have been what happened.
0: Oh, and there you have it. Yeah. W- what an incredible story. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, out of everything in your book that I loved so much, the, the, the part that really struck me was right at the end when you talked, when you were just sort of like giving your acknowledgements and you talk about the freedom of telling, telling this story as a, a gift mm-hmm. you finally gave yourself. And can you just explain to me a little bit about what, 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 what you mean by that?
1: Uh, The most toxic thing about what happened to us is the secretiveness of it. And that you could never um, feel supported outside of that little family group uh, because everything was a secret. And And I just found that so heavy, like carrying that was so heavy. You know, I think we are in a time when people are more willing to talk about uh, you know, mental health issues and uh, how family dysfunction affects us all. Um, you know, these are things that have been sort of covered in shame mm. and nobody wanted to talk about. But I think that's changing. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing.
0: Yeah. You shine yeah. a
1: little light. And so to be able to just say, this is my story and this is what happened, was so freeing. It was like putting down a very heavy weight. And, you know, always worrying about what somebody was going to say or think or whatever, to say, whatever, I, it, it's all out there now, I'm not worried anymore. That was a really big gift.
0: <laughs> well, look, it, it was wonderful, and I, I'm so glad uh, you embraced it and was able to share it with the world so run hide repeat by pauline dakin pauline thank you so much for your time for your generosity of just being able to share the story and tell us a little bit more about it
1: and it was good to talk to you paul thank you so much
0: i hope you enjoyed this episode of my fucked up family enough to subscribe share or like and remember if you have your own fucked up family story you'd like to share contact us through our facebook page